This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. So welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, which is co-hosted by the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen and the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. I'm Duncan McCargo. I'm director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies. and I'm also professor of political science at the University of Copenhagen. This is a huge pleasure for me. I want to welcome back virtually to the Nordic region, Aim Simpeng, who was one of our keynote speakers at the Nordic NIAS Council Conference that we held in Lund back in December when we were talking about digital Asias. We were treated to a wonderful presentation during her keynote, uh, but she talked about a number of different cases. And as a Thailand person, I was desperate to ask her more things about one of those three cases that she talked about, which was the Thai case and the future forward party. So, Aim, welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So this is a, a, a huge pleasure to, to have a chance to continue this conversation. I'm sorry we didn't get you to Copenhagen to have it face-to-face, but I owe you uh, lunch or dinner or something next time you, you come this way. Now, I know that you've been doing all this research about Future Forward. For listeners who don't know anything about Future Forward, we had this new progressive Thai party started in 2018, which became the third largest party in parliament after the March 2019 elections. And now, since I last saw AIM in December, it's gone because the party was <laughs> abolished and banned and dissolved by the Constitutional Court on my birthday, the 21st of February, 2020. So the party came and went. What, what was new about this party, Ames? The, t- the name of the party in Thai is actually not Future Forward, but New Future. So what, what was new about this party? I was so excited. It's been forever since you feel alive, you know? Like maybe, mm. maybe there's hope. Maybe there's hope for, for yep. people in the 30s and 40s and mm-hmm. 50s who had grown up since that first time, you know, we had that military coup in the early 1990s. And it seemed like it seems like we've given up that yes. nothing has changed and that's hope you know sc- scrolling through facebook feeds of my friends many of which or the early supporters of the party um couldn't believe it at first because mm-hmm. you know you're sort of numb to this feeling of anything new but for months and months on it keeps getting more and more interesting and there yep. seems to be more and more interest so I couldn't help myself, just as a, just a, an observer, an outside observer of something that's exploding into the political scene, mm. even I on this party. And when I had my chance to go back home to really uh, attend some of the talks and rallies and the energies in the rooms mm. and in the places, yes. just you couldn't, you just felt alive. Personally, that's how I got interested because right. a lot of my friends were in on it. And so yeah. here I was. Right, because for the uninitiated, uh, the military seized power in Thailand in May 2014, and then we had an almost five-year period of military junta. So when Future Forward came along, this was the opening up, this was the preparation for the election. People thought that we're going to have democracy back, we're going to have uh, a new start to Thai politics. And so there's a kind of relationship between the the new party and and the new start. How is it different from traditional Thai parties? The people behind this party and their supporters, they were fearless. Mm-hmm. At a time, people should be most fearful 
of yes. saying anything political, mm -hmm. uh, but just the audacity and the language they use. It's almost like there's a cultural shift among mm -hmm. younger people. At least those are the one I observe. Right. That they wanted to speak their mind and they wanted to, they understood the consequences, but they wanted to say that anyway. And so I think this is exactly what I observed when I did the interviews of the candidates of this party and asked yep. them why they were running for a spot, because most of them are political rookies. They had not right. been involved in politics at yeah. all, not even yep. being, you know, in a, in like a student association right. or anything like that, nothing. And I was like, what got, why did you even say no? Right. Yep. And they said, they just, most of them would talk about how they listened to this wonderful YouTube interview of Tanaton and mm -hmm. talk about why it's our responsibility to do something to make the change happen. That yes. it's not going to be up to no one else and mm -hmm. that we need to step forward and do mm -hmm. it. And that's what made them feel a form to be a candidate of a party yep. no one's heard of. It right. seemed almost unreal. Yes. Yeah, it, there is this kind of unreality about the whole thing. The closest it reminds me to is the, the Palang Tam Party, the Palang Dharma Party of Jamlong Simung, started uh, 30 years earlier in 1988, when again, there was no money, there was all this excitement, there was all this idealism. Sadly, yeah. again, it didn't exactly last, but uh, there's a sense in which people thought they could remake the political order. So every few years in Thailand, people come along with this idea of remaking the political order. You've mentioned the young people. Is this party, or what, strictly speaking, was this party, a party really focused on and attractive to the new generation? Does it reflect a generational split in Thai society? I think there's two ways to look at this. Uh, you can look at it from a strategic perspective. Strategically speaking, the party was very youth-oriented. During the interviews of many of the constituency candidates I spoke to, they said that when they went for training on how to campaign, because most of them mm. never campaigned, right. the party said, we need to win at every constituency that has a university. Mm -hmm. And that was their core. Initially, right. they thought, even the party thought so. Right. But when you actually look into the, the broader message, but also actually the finances of the party, you realize that the financial donors of this party are obviously not young people. So th this is not a microfinance type of party when you think no. about you know, how Barack Obama's uh, finances yep. campaign, yep. Uh, a large of the uh, finances came from particular individuals who are mm -hmm. really wealthy or particular corporations. Yes. Uh, so there, there's definitely a, a financial weight being put on by older generations, mm -hmm. uh, influential people. But the front of the party and the way it markets itself and the yes. way it designed the strategy is to first tap into the young generation. And that's for good reason. This is the first time uh, voters, uh, they, don't, they, didn't, they didn't have the same kind of commitment maybe to the political parties that their parents may have been committed right. to. Many of them were too young to remember, you know, at the height of the red and yellow shirt conflict. Some, some remember, but they do remember what mm. it's like to live in a military dictatorship because they lived through it. They do remember what it's like to feel like something has to be better than this. Mm -hmm. right? There's this sort of emotional sort of awakening of this group where they're waiting for something better to change. There are young people around the world, not just Thai young people, are anxious about the future. Yes. They, they feel that they can't get to the same 
they can't climb the social ladder, economic ladder, the mm -hmm. way their parents may have had. Right. And this is particularly for urbanized uh, middle-class youths in the cities or uh, different provincial, uh, provincial, provincial towns. So I think marketing-wise, messaging-wise, and the way they strategize their campaigns started initially at, uh, with the younger people with mm -hmm. the financial backing of the older generation. But as their, camp their, their campaign expanded and their popularity soared, they realized that they need to tap into even younger as well as yep. older. I mean, it's really hard, as we know, to get good data about what happens in Thai elections because you can't do surveys and things very easily. But 6.2 million people voted for Future Forward. Almost every Thai I know under 30 seems to have voted for Future Forward. Uh, have you any idea what proportion of the 6.2 million were these younger people? Is there no any way idea. of knowing? No. Um, I know that there's a group uh, in Thomasad led by Atasit Bangal mm. who did a survey uh, of about 1,000 over a thousand respondents uh, target particularly at, at young people. Yeah. I actually have the survey, have a, we haven't had time to analyze it, but he did say that from his, uh, from the looks of it, yes, the youth uh, mm -hmm. represented a bit more than normal, but it's, it's not the only core group. Right. And that's exactly what the candidates said as well yeah. when they were talking yeah. to the people on the ground that initially was the young people and mm -hmm. even younger. So we're talking about below voting age. Of course, yes. Uh, secondary yeah. school uh, right. kids. And then it kind of progressively moved in through family lines, meaning, you know, the younger members of the family told the older members of the family that, you know, I need right. this for my future. Right. You better change. Yes. Because whatever, you, who you were wearing before was clearly not working. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. I mean, I, I'm obviously very interested in the parties, the point that I'm also studying it and writing about it. And the thing that I've come yeah. across too is this, the kids persuading their parents how to vote, which seems to be a role reversal from previous generations where we had the parents telling the kids how to vote. Now the pyramid seems to have been turned upside down rather like that logo of, of the Future Forward Party. Yeah, and I hope that in your book, um, which is absolutely necessary. We'll talk about potential for understanding the change in political culture in Thailand. Yes. Because I yeah. think there's a real cultural shift here. Right, right, exactly. So lots of people, and this was sort of the focus of our last conversation in Lund, were talking about Future Forward through this lens of the digital. You know, what's going on here is a party that's figured out how to do online campaigning, to use social media, and that's the way that they appeal to these young people and so on. How far was the phenomenon of Future Forward becoming the third largest party in parliament, all based on the, a digital strategy or an online campaign strategy? It's less important at the constituency level than mm -hmm. the national level. Yeah. So I think it's multifaceted and it's quite context-based. Social yep. media accounts for probably about 40 to 50% of success. Um, mm -hmm. this, is, this is said by the constituents, candidates themselves. Yes. And most of the heavy lifting was done uh, through the leaders, the two, right. the two main ones in particular. So it was a very highly personalized social media campaigning. Um, mm -hmm. The party is almost, I mean, this is sort of the hallmark of Thai politics, right? Yep. The party and the individual leaders right. is sort of, the individuals are driving the party's right. flag. And of course, right. being a new party, you need that face. You can't yes. do some kind of faceless movement, like a, right. a fully digital movement where you have no leader you can call on to and no one to answer. Right. And based on what I have seen in the interviews, it seems to me that the constituencies that are in the center of each province, so usually constituency one, but it not, it's not always yes. the case, yeah. uh, the most urbanized, right. most difficult 
to do campaigning on foot mm -hmm. uh, because often you can't always get to gated communities yep. and all these things with the, yep. the most physical barriers rely the most on social media yes uh, and the further out the, the more yep. peripheral you move away then it becomes well who's in the district that I need to talk to that I could get mm -hmm. to uh, that and, and then who are they so for example in the democrat strongholds in eastern Thailand well let me give you an extreme example of Shonburi because Shonburi mm. is very difficult to penetrate right, right yeah uh, Right, been... it's known as a place of dark influence <laughs> and godfathers, basically. No right. one in their right mind would set foot to so, try and can campaign there. Right, you have feet, but <laughs> yes. do you want to, you know, right. risk your own life? Indeed. Um, so it's not just that a whole lot of people in Shonbury are not actually Shonbury residents. Mm -hmm. That's one really important factor to understand right. different constituencies. So who are yes. the migrant workers? Are they from Isan? Are they yes. uh, overseas? Do they, uh, have they become locals? Uh, have they, and a lot of the times they're not. So then the candidates decide based on their mm -hmm. risk factor. Uh, because you've got to understand, I think people often forget, people think Facebook is free, right? But mm -hmm. it's not because in order to finance campaigning on Facebook, you need capital right. because uh, you have to pay per click, right? Yes. This is yep. Facebook ad campaign. It's right. not cheap and you're not, especially if you don't really know your constituency well, you don't mm -hmm. really know the potential impact. So mm -hmm. you could easily run out of money because most of these, uh, these candidates use their own money to, fi to finance their campaigns. And many of them are, uh, do not come from necessarily wealthy background. They do have some money, but not they're not rich mm. so they they have to decide okay if if i go viral can i afford it you know yep. and that's yep. something the party doesn't help with didn't help with right it's sort of right. like well here are the things you cannot do on social media because we're in this political situation and you know the military is watching us mm -hmm. but then off you go yeah it was very right. like right. that so in constituencies where social media hasn't proved to be very necessary or all that effective, there are constituencies that, A, have older population uh, yes. in more rural areas or in industrial area where there are lots of factories, you know, the, there is less of a sense of community. And, and B, uh, where the candidates themselves felt they don't have the local networks they can utilize first. So many of the candidates first fall back on their own network. So they, they may be maybe Muslim. Some of them, uh, one, of, one, one of the candidates was a bartender. Right, uh, yeah, I remember the story in Lund's very everyone. engaging story. Yes, right. He like yeah. knew everyone. And that yeah. was one of the reasons why um, he was approached to like fill in a form because he never thought he would win. And then here we go, he like knew everyone. He was really afraid for his life mm. uh, because he was campaigning in Sirasha, so in another another area of Shunburi that was yeah. under influenced the power Indeed. of families. Yeah. So he had to use his own networks. He didn't know how to use social media. Uh, his 19-year-old unpaid intern helped him out. Right. That's what he could. <laughs> Um, that in turn actually made a break into the gaming community and was mm -hmm. able to mobilize some support there. But right. it's just, it's very patchwork. So right. really the only candidates uh, that I talked to that went, you know, hardcore on social media campaigning were the ones largely from the city. 
Yep. They didn't see any other way they could physically visit everyone right. um, or face significant physical barriers to get into some of the communities, either yes. because there's too yep. many gated communities or there, there are communities where there had been longstanding old politicians there or other kind of vote brokerage networks there that they felt that they couldn't do it safely. But other than that, I think a lot of the candidates felt like the main party, you know, the party at the national level and the, the leaders pushed already hard on social media. And it was their job to do the more face-to-face, mm. face, right. you know, on-foot type of right. campaigning, use whatever networks they have through their moms, their dad, yes. their uh, schoolmates from when they're in primary school to get it going. So I think... I think it was a combination of both. Uh, mm-hmm. The social media campaign was very slick. I mean, yes. not in a toxin slick way. How do I put it? It was a lot of cultural stuff, pop yes. culture. Right. It was very different from like, you know, how you wrote about toxin. Sure. Um, it was a media tycoon. There was, yeah. it, it, this is not like a production for an evening soap, but much more like, hey, what makes young people want to watch this YouTube video? Right. Or, you know, what kind of hashtag can we use? Yeah. And it requires in the knowledge of the pop culture at the time, yeah. uh, especially uh, grassroots sort of subaltern pop culture right. of resistance. Right. And, yeah. and so cleverly marketing those not only uh, was great because it, you know, the adults sort of, it went over their mm. heads so it sort of went underground for so long, but also that's exactly the kind of stuff young people share. Yeah, there's that kind of crossover. I think many of us, when we think about Thai elections, you mentioned um, vote canvases. A lot of people just think that Thai elections at the local level are driven by what we call in Thai Hua Kanan is a, a phrase that has a rather dark connotation, some suggestion of fishy business and so on. And of course, Future Forward claimed they didn't have any of these vote mobilizing, canvassing uh, Hua Kanan characters. But of course, we saw after the dissolution of the party, even a bit before it, some filtering off of certain constituency MPs who defected to other parties. And you start to wonder, or as I start to wonder, whether some kind of old style politicians didn't manage to get themselves selected. And some of these people, did they have any vote canvases in certain places and areas in the in the classic sense, do you think? Not in not what they told me, mm-hmm. uh, but I know that the vote canvassing networks of Tyrax Ashad mm. helped a lot right. once that party was dissolved. Yes. Not in an official way, but in the sort of, hey, let me help you out since you right. can't run anymore. Uh, because I know that at the at the at the party level there was it was the zero tolerance for right. for for Huokanan, right. the use of Huokanan, and even some of the candidates admit to me that they wanted to at first because right. it's what everyone was doing, yep. but they couldn't do it. But um, in the eastern part of Thailand, uh, where Thairaksashad and, and some parts of the central mm. Thailand, when Thairaksashad was definitely going to win, once they gone, that some of that network helped out. Because you got to channel the potential voters of that party into social forward, right? So, I mean, there's a natural fit, but it's still, uh, it was still important. So I I, I did hear that there was some of that assistance going on, on the background. Right. Uh, I don't know how much of that account for the actual vote transfer, but it, it wasn't surprising that. Right. Future Forward was able to capture the constituencies that would have otherwise gone to Tyrax Because didn't they get something like nine in the Eastern Seaboard? 
really got quite a lot. A, yeah, yeah, really quite a lot. Yeah, very surprising. For a party that had no time and yeah. not a lot of resources to campaign right. in, right. in a very difficult uh, area to campaign. Yeah. There was an interesting back when you write, were writing books about Taksin and you were talking yes. about back like as it was in the good old days. Ago. <laughs> right. uh, you were talking about well, let me ask you a question. Like you were yes. talking about the potential of Taksin to potentially finally institutionalize the party system in Thailand. Mm-hmm. If the party system becomes more institutionalized, Hua Canal would be a lot less effective, right? Right. Right. Do you still think that? Well, yeah, I mean, in that book, I was talking about a different conceptualization of a political party, which is electoral professional party. Uh, Mm. So basically a party where what matters is the national campaigning. It's the effectiveness of the the media strategy and the people's excitement and enthusiasm around the leadership and certain kinds of, you can call them loosely, policies associated with the party. So that drives the popularity of the party more than the individual candidates. And we did see how tax and did that. But of course, if we compare Future Forward with, with Tairaktai, Tairaktai, half of the people that they brought in from the get-go were the old-star politicians, and half of them were mm. the new ones. So there was always this hybrid kind of mix of different types in there. It was never a pure electoral professional party. There was nothing pure mm-hmm. about it. It was a set of messy compromises. And Taxon said he was going to get rid of these dark influence characters, but he kept a lot of them hanging around in his cabinet for a long time. And some of them are still there uh, in, the, in the legacy party that like Purtai that followed. So they didn't completely purge those people. So during Taxa's time, it was always a hybrid between this, you know, Blairite electoral professionalism with your shining, gleaming leader and your exciting policies and your new rhetoric with the dark underbelly. And Future Forward came along and said, okay, we're going to do that without the dark underbelly. It's just going to be the good guys. It's just going to be the policies and the nice, shiny leaders. And is that sustainable? That's obviously what we're finding out. Yeah, and the re- I think the real test comes at the local level. Yes, the local elections. that's right. But I don't know how it's going to play out now. Right. The party becoming a movement and it's not, I don't know. But that they, they said that too. They said that we will find out if yep. we're right yep. at the local level. Yeah. And you've been writing interesting stuff about the Future Forward Party on these elections on this wonderful website, Thai Data Points. And one of the posts that you did recently, you talked about social media minimalists, that there were some candidates who really didn't use much social media at all. But you're not suggesting that they reverted to the classic vote canvasser traditional method. So how did you fight an election without doing the old style vote canvassing and without doing social media and still win or still do very well? You can. And mm. I, I, like I said, like, obviously, the fact that Future Forward didn't win all the seats had meant that the Huacana network still works, still right. works really well. Right. And yeah. no one knows why. I, I think we're sort of this juncture trying to figure out uh, so, so sort of three things, right? Local mm-hmm. local canvassers, um, door-to-door, and yep. social media, and how much of each, because you can't do them all well, no. No. all three. Right. Uh, and it almost boils down to um, how much you know about your local constituency mm-hmm. and how well the, the party at the national level is doing on all three. 
right. because the local cat, like the the constituency candidate, can only do so much. It's just one person. Yeah. And for a new party, you're always faced with the lack of legacy, right? Especially a new party with a leader who's unknown in the political arena in a place right. like Thailand, right. where you know you're looking for a, a recognizable name. And I think the courage and the well, the courage, but also the party was just being really inventive. Like they, mm -hmm. they, they stood their ideological grounds. Yep. They're not exactly sure how they were going to pull it off, but they, they did it somehow. I think it's going to lead to a new thinking on, on camp, um, campaigning in Thailand mm -hmm. and actually elsewhere. Right? Yes. About how much really you need social media. And if you do social media, what do you do? There's so many things you can do. Some of the candidates uh, use social media to actually uh, organize events locally. Right. Because social media is critical to get to the yes. offline stuff. Yes. Out there, it's just doing it for almost like a marketing, uh, right. online marketing. Right. It's almost like an yeah. ad. Right. right. So there's different ways to do it. Some of, some of the candidates post all the time, right. uh, answer right. every question. Yeah. Some didn't. It, the the once you're online, it's just how you do it differently. Some of them did surveys even, uh, all, both online, offline, just trying to figure out. Some of them did some analytics when they're trying to figure yes. out, you know, who are the people that are visiting the site and converting right. into an, an event, uh, signing up for an event, where are they located, what's their age group, like some of them did, did you know deep dive analytics and and so that they know that okay in this mobile of this constituency they seem to be a lot of traffic let me show up there the next day yep and then they do another video and so like it it's many of them just they didn't have one a strategy they just right. went with what they've got and the the right. staff that they've got do they know how to do it some of them uh decided early on that they really need social media they need to do a good job some of them just went along with it Actually, a lot of them went along with it. Mm -hmm. A lot of them also didn't find it that useful. It was really right. good use of their time. Um, and so I think talking to them about this, it, it gives me a d different way of thinking about social media campaigning, that it's not just uh, one size fits all and right. what you do with the interaction that you receive. Uh, yes. Because it can be quite fleeting, you know, like you're yeah. not forming a relationship. Yep. And a lot of times you're not going to see these people face to face. So how are you going to convince them to, mm -hmm. you know, leave their phone and walk into a booth and actually vote for you? Right. Uh, I think I think there's a lot to, to be unpacked and it's not straightforward. But what I know for sure is that it's very, very decentralized. Right. And I think sim this is almost similar to what I observed in the Philippines is mm -hmm. that there was a core messaging. There may have been some investment in PR and you know uh, PR help with getting online commentators and likes and clicks. But once you decent, once you basically let go of your your power to let mm -hmm. the influencers or the local politicians to do their own campaigning, you lose a lot of the ability to control the messaging. So the success of the overall party depends on how well these individuals do and how well yes. these influencers do. They're right. almost like loose cannons at that point. Right. And you can't control what they do on social media in the way you can control them offline campaigning. And, and they don't have the resources to control. So they rely heavily on how well these candidates can be loyal mm -hmm. to the messaging and the leadership of yep. the party. And it's almost blind trust because they don't know. These guys are signed on to this and somehow, you know, like they, they, there isn't a time to really build a core identity of what it's like to be a member of this party. Yep. That's what I always wonder. I said, what does it mean for you to be in this party? 
-hmm. what is the identity of this party? Right. What what is it? I don't know if you're thinking about that too, writing the book. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Because they talk about identity a lot. And yet identity takes time to form, takes a lot of physical contact and, and relationships. Right. And yet they went ahead with this election without having much of anything really mm -hmm. and trusted that the people they recruited understood what it means to be a future forwarders. And when you ask them, they just said, it's almost like listening to someone who's, you know, running for office, but Obama, like, we believe in change. It's yeah, 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 right. It's very, very vague. <laughs> Idealistic very, very vague almost. Yeah. Then once you get down to the nitty gritty of policy, you realize there's a lot of differences. Yeah, if you interview the candidates in the deep south, um, mm -hmm. which I talked to a few, they were not successful, but right. oh my goodness, it's a difficult area. Of course. They really were against that whole LGBT. Of course, thing. yeah, the whole the yeah. diversity piece doesn't fly everywhere. Yeah, yeah. No, and yeah. somehow they stomach that. Right. Because they said, and this is based on the deep south only. They right. said we try to get into the existing parties, yep. but they look down on us because we're young. The hierarchy right. stuff. Yes. They want to break out of that more right. than they have to accept right. that they are part of the party that wants more progress on yeah. the gender equality. You know, that yes. they subdue that in order to have a party they could make right. a difference in. And that's really it's a cultural shift almost. It's my last question for you, sort of points to the, the future as well, which is appropriate since we're talking about future forward. If you believe, as some people do, and some people will tell you, well, in the end, it's not about this local campaigning so much as about Tanaton and to some extent other leading figures like Pierre Boot and Vanika and their appeal. And all these candidates were able to do was in some way capitalize on or, or ramp up locally some version of that. Take out Tanaton, Pierre Boot, Vanika uh, and those people going forward to the move forward party. Can they do it again with a less charismatic leader who doesn't have that kind of image or are all these local constituency candidates who fought so valiantly and won uh, last year doomed to disappear once they don't have that cosmic force of the Tenetorn imprimatur kind of behind them? No, they need they need like a, yeah. a leader like that. Yeah. The party is too young. Right. Even the candidates themselves can describe why they're in it populated. Yes, right. Um, without referring to Tenetorn's YouTube video. Right. That means the identity isn't, isn't solidified. So that implies that Move Forward is not going to be able to hang on to too many of these constituencies unless they manage to repackage themselves in a more appealing way for next time. Well, the ideas are there. Mm -hmm. You know, the ideas for change are there. I think it's always been there in the grassroots, mm -hmm. but it has to... We yep. need a, a good marketing packaging team behind it to package them. And they understood that. They, yep. they they talk about their party about as if they talk about products, you know? Mm. Probably the same yep. way Thaksin talk about Taraktai. They talk about about it like products, like, okay, mm. how can we sell this? What are the channels of marketing and sales we can do that's viable, that's targeted, that makes our products appealing and people are willing to spend the money even if they don't have or might not have? I will tell their friends about it. They actually talk about it like a product. Like if we talk to the right. social media oh, yes. and marketing yep. team, that's, that's how they look at it, you know? That's why they went for the young first. Right. Uh, even though they have less disposable income, yes, they have more social capital within their families. Right. So a lot of the young people who they have referenced as, you know, convincing their parents, mm. it's usually actually the young people from the provinces. Yes. Because their parents had 
had realized that their kids are more educated than them, know better. Right. They went home and tell them about it. They said they should work for them. You know, they could speak English now. Right. They could do lots of things. They're willing to give their kids a go and trusting them that maybe they know better than us. Right. Absolutely. So um, I think as long as they think about that party as a product they could sell, not that they don't believe in the core ideas, but ultimately Mm -hmm. you've got to market it. You you need a good face. Yes. So it's going to be tough going forward for Move Forward. Yeah, everything is at standstill right now with the situation. But when we emerge from this, I think we will see what's filling the void. I don't know. Have you been very good at predicting Thai politics after all this? Who can can predict anything? (laughs) We're always getting those questions, aren't we? I hate to be asked them, but I'm in in the privileged position for once of asking the question of someone else. What's going to happen next? That's what everybody really wants to know. And this is Thailand. We have no idea, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow morning, let alone what's going to happen next year or the next election. So that's that's always the challenge. Who would have thought, you know, just over two years ago that Future Forward would come out of nowhere and become the third largest party and then be gone in a flash? I mean, none of this was really very predictable. So what we can predict is that something unpredictable will happen between now and the aftermath of the next election. There's enough space. You sell the ideas, but yes. there has to be a reservoir of willing right. consumers of that ideas, right? Yes. And right. Future Forward proved that there yes. is an expanding. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, I, and it's now somewhat void. So right. it's just waiting for the right. next one to fill it right. up. Because we also discovered that those that whatever it is that Future Forward represents, which is quite hard to isolate, is extremely threatening and alarming to some people in the Thai state and society to the point where they just can't hear it. You'd have thought they weren't posing yeah. any particular problem or threat, just being a small opposition party and saying a few annoying things in the parliament, not even really getting along with the other opposition parties. Why not just yeah. leave them be uh, as a symbol of something else? But no, they couldn't listen. They just I want think, to turn the volume off on them. Absolutely. And if you're, you know, spending a lot of time, like I do, reading the um, pro per youth groups on yes. Facebook, you realize that they're not afraid. Of, it's it, Maybe deep down, they're afraid of economic redistribution and mm. political power redistribution. But at the surface, they really despise future forward for the way mm-hmm. they talk. Yes for the way they, sh- they tear apart the fabrics of our very right. unequal hierarchical yep. society. They yep. always talk, oh, how could you say that to an right. adult? This is not how you talk to an older right. person. Right. Every time, yep. just that, and, and I have to say, like the three leaders, they, they're pretty harsh, right? The way Absolutely, they, they do not pretty hold mean. back at times. No, yes. and it's no. very They untied. say the unsayable all the time. Yeah. They're yep. really untie about yep. it if you're being very right. conservative. Yes. And that just tears apart everything you believe about mm-hmm. what's right in yep. society for some people. Right? Yes. So, That's right. How can I let these people be in charge of the government right. if you can respect right. your seniority? You know, right. like it's yes. just wrong. Yes. And the yeah. whole morality yeah. thing yeah. just went through the roof, like even more so than before. And I think if you, if your new leader is a lot more compromising, doesn't speak that way, but still does what the FRP wants yep. to do, but right. softer, or maybe more calculating, more two-faced about it, you know, like sound polite. I don't know. You think maybe, yeah. maybe they'll be more accepted. It's just yes. that really hard, right. um, just the way they talk, just, just makes some people scream. Of course, it does. They're burning. It does. <laughs> 
they don't complain that oh I can't believe this party wants yes. to redistribute wealth. No, no one complains like I can't believe she talks like that. Right. It all becomes it's personal. It all becomes becomes about attitude and about self presentation, yeah. about manners and what is appropriate, yeah. and all this kind of thing. Weird, right? In a society where we really need to talk about economic inequality. Indeed, indeed, that's <laughs> right. What we manners. need to talk about is money and power, and instead we're going to talk about how people dress, how people look, yeah. how they yeah. how they comport themselves physically in front of their elders. These are things that loom very much larger in, in a lot of people's imaginations. Yes, this Thank has been you. a fascinating conversation. I'm so glad we're able to follow up on the on the great talk you gave in Lund. So thanks so much. Aim, this has been spectacular. Thank you. You've been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast, which is co-presented by the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and the Center for East Asian Studies, which is at the University of Turku in Finland. I'm Duncan Macargo. I'm director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies here in Copenhagen. We've been talking to Aim Simpeng, who's a lecturer in comparative politics at the University of Sydney, and who's been doing some fascinating work on the Future Forward Party. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.